St. Louis was the Spirits. Oh, oh, yeah. the Spirits, St. Louis. Back oh, when awesome. they would name basketball teams after airplanes from 40 years ago. Yeah. We need to get back to that. Welcome to the Invisible Capital Podcast with PitchBook, where we shine a light on the traditionally opaque private markets. Here are your hosts, Adley Bowden and Adam Lewis. Welcome everyone to the Invisible Capital Podcast. We're devoting season one to examining the private markets by discussing the work of PitchBook analysts and writers during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Adam Lewis, a private equity reporter for the PitchBook newsletter, and I'll be joined today by Adley Bowden, our head of editorial and our institutional research group, along with PitchBook news editor and the author of our weekend newsletter, Mr. Kevin Dowd. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hello, hello. Thank you guys very much for having me. Yes, very excited for this episode because we'll be talking mostly about sports, which uh, <laughs> Adley and I uh, and yourself obviously have a great interest in. Um, can you just touch real quick before we get into everything on your role here at PitchBook? Because I don't think just calling you an editor probably does it justice. Uh, yeah, sure. I, uh, I am the editor of our private equity and M&A uh, content. I've been doing that for a few months here now. Before that, I uh, did some other editing of general content and did some writing. And then, yeah, I also write our weekend pitch newsletter. It goes out every Sunday, kind of tries to offer up a recap of the last week in the private markets, kind of synthesizing some different themes and trends uh, that have been going on. Um, So, yeah, that's pretty much how I spend my time. Well, Kevin's recent feature is about Spencer Dinwiddie, a shooting guard for the Brooklyn Nets, who's gained a lot of headlines over the past few months for both his enthusiasm for Bitcoin as well as uh, the fact that he's dabbled in the VC space and you know had some early success. So Kevin, what were some big takeaways from your interview with Mr. Dinwiddie? Yeah, uh, I mean, kind of the main thing I would say I took from it is that he is uh, kind of interested in doing a lot more than dabbling, I would say. Uh, he is uh, recently, I think, Early this year, officially launched a venture firm called Eon XI uh, with a guy named Sherard Harrington, who has been a longtime friend and collaborator uh, of Spencer. They go back to when they were both uh, student athletes at the University of Colorado. Um, and yeah, I mean, it seems like very much, you know, often you see here these uh, professional athletes that are getting in on investing, whether that's just acting as an angel or kind of forming their own firms with, uh, with other veteran investors. I mean, maybe there might be, you know, acting a little bit more like a figurehead uh, in some ways. Maybe they're just kind of giving their opinion on some deals, letting the other deal makers handle a lot of the other stuff. Uh, but it really does seem like Spencer is uh, like fully embedded in this firm. He is a full founder of it. He's making decisions on what kind of tech they're looking at, making decisions on what kind of founders they're looking at. Um, and this is really like stuff that he has thought about for a long time, has studied for a long time, and is really intelligent about, um, as far as I can tell. Uh, he knows what he's talking about with this stuff. It's not a, it's not like a hobby for him, not a little side project. Like I think he is uh, very passionate about this stuff, knows what he's talking about. Um, and yeah, it was fun kind of getting to pick his brain a little bit about what they've been up to and what they see coming down the line. And yeah, as you mentioned, kind of some of those little Bitcoin-related projects he has been having in the works lately. As you're talking with them about, I believe it's sort of the venture studio as well as the venture firm they've set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get a sense of what the mission was, what they ultimately want to accomplish? Is that something that he sees uh, outliving his playing career? Yeah, so it's uh, definitely, it's uh, Eonexi, kind of the larger umbrella, and then they've got their startup studio and a venture arm both kind of operating separately within that. Um, and I think the mission of both is largely... Um, they are, they're raising outside capital, they're a venture firm, but there also is a real kind of marketing focus to it. Um, can influencer marketing is kind of in particular. 
Um, some of their early efforts have been kind of based around that idea that influencers uh, kind of have, and I think a lot of this is driven by Spencer's own experience, uh, obviously being an NBA player, being someone with, I don't, I don't know how many it is, tens of thousands of Twitter followers, uh, someone who people pay attention to, um, just kind of seeing that the power that that can have uh, on products and on companies and kind of just being able to get the word out there. And I think a lot of what they are trying to do is bring that sort of idea and that expertise and their own networks and reach to other influencers, founders, uh, investors even, uh, kind of in particular in the gaming and sports and entertainment sectors um, are kind of where their focuses are at. Um, and yeah, I do as far as what Spencer and Sherrod both, how they see this as a long-term thing. I think it is uh, not, not a sad project at all. Uh, it's very much, I think, what Spencer sees himself operating in this space in some capacity for the foreseeable future. Um, his, uh, this kind of ties into the story I was working on, his, uh, his Twitter bio, at least as of this speaking, is just a tech guy with a jumper, um, which I think kind of is a pretty good job of describing how he sees himself. He obviously acknowledges that basketball is kind of where his bread is buttered. That is why he gets to do what he does. Um, but he also is, that's very much, it's not all he's interested in. Um, and that's not all he is. Uh, I think he sees, really sees a lot of himself uh, in a lot of the tech and investment world and would like to explore that as much as he can. Yeah, Kevin, I thought you outlined really well in your story how, you know, his NBA career has has really taken off over the mm -hmm. past couple of years. And once we get back from COVID-19, you know, he will be a key contributor on a team with, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving that has a chance to get to the NBA finals. But that being said, uh, has he spent this time off while the NBA shut down because of coronavirus, uh, ramping up efforts for his firm? Yes, definitely. Uh, that we yeah, kind of talked about that a little bit uh, when I spoke to him a couple of times. Um, yeah, just it's kind of he put it like there's only there's only so many there's hours of the day that you can spend working out and running and shooting. Uh, right. And then there's other hours left in the day that he's not used to having. Um, and I think this has uh, he's a father as well that has been at the top of his priority list. But yeah, besides that and uh, staying on top of basketball, I think he said this is basically what he's been spending his time doing. Um, and we kind of talked in a little bit about that, too, just the uh, when basketball is going on, how he balances um, the two sides of it, you know, being a top, a world class athlete and also trying to be a world class investor, I think is his goal. A lot of the other parts of life he has kind of cut out as far as uh, going out and hanging out with people and doing other more social things. It's uh, it's kind of his basketball family and doing this is uh kind of the way he put it, the way he is spending a lot of his time. He's used to that. And then having the more hours in the day lately, it seemed like for both him and Sherrard uh, for the firm, they've been uh, yeah making some new hires, uh, kind of getting some new initiatives going. They're, as I think I mentioned, they're just kind of in the early months of getting it off the ground. So lots of sort of those early decisions to be made and hires to be made and strategies to be undertaken and all that sorts of stuff. The rise of the athlete investor has been a big storyline over the past decade. For know. sure whether it be Serena Williams, Aaron Rodgers, um, you know, kind of following it into venture capital. Uh, you've got, you know, Ronnie Lott, you've got um, Next Play Capital, we've got Lance. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's a well-trod um, path, if you will. Do you think this COVID-19 pandemic is going to separate uh, the athletes that are serious about this um, versus the athletes are just kind of want to use it as a figurehead or it's, you know, kind of a, a promotional deal for them? Um, I think there maybe could be some uh, some ties there, just as far as I guess seeing who is kind of putting more time into this and who is not. Um, but I think maybe even more so than that, it could sort of be in some ways an impetus to get other people into kind of other athletes into the investing sphere. Um, it's kind of having some time to put things on pause 
and talk to other people uh, in their worlds and see what they're doing. It's obviously not really the same thing, but uh, it's like in the NBA and, you know, here early, mid-June, there's been a lot of players getting together on calls and talking about uh, instances of, you know, social justice and kind of what the best ways uh, to approach things like that are. I think there have been from, you know, what I have read and heard, lots of uh, kind of more collaboration between athletes and just talking about uh, things in life and work outside of, you know, what's going on on the court, on the field. I see this too, obviously, with Major League Baseball and their kind of ongoing uh, struggles to figure out what they're going to do. Um, and two, I mean, just the fact of living through a time of some severe societal stresses and people getting sick and dying. I think it's a, a time when a lot of people have been thinking about other things besides what they normally think about. Uh, probably when you're, I do not know from firsthand experience, but I think if you're you know, a professional athlete, world-class athlete, it's probably easy to uh, kind of get in, in a tunnel and just be focusing on what you're focusing on. And I mean, for good reason, that's your job. That's how you're getting by. But uh, yeah, I think maybe this has been a time where some people have uh, thought about other things they would like to do uh, with their time. And in a lot of cases with their growing, yeah, growing fortunes. Did uh, Spencer mention if anyone else had reached out about uh, securitizing their contract on a uh, on the blockchain? Did not mention if anyone else has reached out. Um, but that, uh, should I maybe dive in to kind of explain a little bit about Yeah, that what's whole the story? status of that? I don't even understand. Yeah, so having read through it. Last November, I think it was, uh, Spencer announced plans to essentially tokenize his NBA contract, turn that into a security that accredited investors would be able to then invest in. Um, I think it was definitely not, not for everyday investors. There's definitely, I think you had to have you know, some sort of six-figure level of uh, money at hand that you're playing with. But yeah, the idea was basically turn his contract into an investment vehicle in which investors could buy uh, stakes, essentially. Um, and then as the contract progresses, I think on a monthly basis, it would pay out a principal um, to kind of returning the investment, and there would be interest in that as well. Um, I think there was the initial plan, so if I'm recalling this correctly, a third year of Spencer's contract has opt-out clause, and so the idea was that he was pitching that, like, that, so if he were to opt out of that year of the contract and then sign another contract that was more money, that would kind of provide some real uh, financial upside potentially to investors. Uh, I think the NBA, uh, d- I, I know the NBA did not like that. I think they considered that gambling and kind of intervened and eliminated that clause. But uh, eventually, yeah, uh, Venture and his team and the NBA got to a common ground. I believe it was like in late January that they launched the offering. Um, so yeah, that is a thing that is out there now. Um, investors can uh, yeah, buy stakes into that tokenized contract. Uh, as far as I know, mm-hmm. the first time it has ever happened, um, it's definitely somewhat similar to, man, like the late 90s, Frank Thomas tried to like, split up his $25 million baseball contract. He old uh, play for the Chicago White Sox. And I can't remember what it, exactly it was called, but he had some sort of system where he was trying to like sell off stakes in his contract and obviously didn't really catch on. So uh, yeah, Sherrard and uh, Ian XI are hoping that this is the start of a real thing. Um, so I mean, when I asked Spencer about it, he just went off for about three minutes straight explaining all the details of it, like when, why it makes sense, why it works. They have this thought out there, believe in it. Um, and yeah, current, they uh, on like the website for this platform, they currently have like a, a box up saying like they completed the athlete or the offering for Spencer and like an athlete tag. And they have a couple like boxes next to it with big questions marks in it, like the entertainer, the influencer. So they're definitely planning on uh, trying to do hmm. this sort of thing uh, for more people as a way 
both, yeah, to kind of get interaction with fans. Um, and then I guess I didn't, the upside for Spencer, why he would want to do this. Um, so I think it's a three or $34 million contract. I don't think he was necessarily securitizing all of that, but say he was, was able to sell that immediately, then that's 34 million he's getting right now instead of over the span of three years. I mean, when you're someone like him who is, you know, he's making investments, doing angel investing. Uh, if you think that you could do things with that liquidity now, uh, that it would be more beneficial than having that come along in chunks in the years. I think that is sort of the appeal of it and kind of the pitch to uh, the entertainers and influencers of why it might be a good idea. So once he sells a portion of his contract, would the risk then fall on the people who had purchased a stake in it? Correct. And the, uh, okay. the idea for at least, I mean, for him specifically, NBA contract, that it would be pretty low risk. Uh, NBA contracts are guaranteed. Um, if you say, if, uh, let's see, Patrick Mahomes, we're going to do this, that would open up a whole other can of worms because NFL contracts are very different beasts and the amount of money that they announce is often not the amount of money you're getting. Um, but yeah, and I think really the only kind of, as far as I understand it, the only real potential downsides would be like if there was an NBA lockout and uh, contracts were not getting paid. A pandemic. Some, some sort of like large scale disruption to how the league operates gotcha. is pretty much so, I think. That's basically the bet uh, as far as an investor. Yeah. seems like other financial institutions must do that. I mean, that these players take contracts to banks and structure something similar. So I do. The, the leagues are very, very on top of it. Um, yeah. I, there's, I didn't, get, uh, didn't really get too deep into the, the details of their negotiations and stuff, but it sounded like there was some real, uh, and they had some concerns. Yeah. Uh, both, I think, largely just about, yeah, kind of the, uh, the presentation of it. Yeah. But there, there is too, I mean, to some degree, as Spencer laying out the argument of part of how, what the NBA is, how it functions and what their utility is basically is kind of serving as a gatekeeper between the fans and the players. Um, and kind of think the way he explained it, like the players are the asset in a professional sports league. They're the reason it exists. Um, and so the way he sees it, doing this uh, kind of the tokenization is a way to cut out the middleman of the league in some ways and allow fans more direct access so, and I think obviously if the idea is to kind of take away some of the power from the leagues, I think just the way, you know, psychology and multi-billion dollar businesses work, they're probably going to be opposed to measures that might try to take away some of their power. Um, I think it's very much in the early days of really determining what that would look like and how that might actually, what the impacts might be if this became uh, more of a trend. But uh, I think that's definitely an angle of it too. Kevin, why do you think there's been such a trend of just a broader trend of all of these Wall Street investors and Silicon Valley investors kind of just pouring into the professional sports scene? Yeah, I mean, always uh, since since there have been professional sports, I think uh, businessmen have always been drawn to it um, largely as a vanity project. You get to, your names on there for this fun thing that everyone loves to do. You get your box, you get your courtside seats, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, for sure, I think in the last 20, 25 years, uh, there has been a real growing body of ownership, maybe even more recent than that, maybe the last 10, 15 years. Um, yeah, like you say, Silicon Valley, uh, private equity executives, Wall Street executives uh, looking to buy these teams, not necessarily just as, oh, look at me, I own the Golden State Warriors, but as a real investment and a way to grow money in a pretty insane way. Um, I mean, I think take, for example, uh, Philadelphia 76ers, probably one of the more prominent ones here. They were acquired uh, in 2011, I believe, by a group that's led by Josh Harris, who's a co-founder of Apollo Global, and David Blitzer, who I think is head of strategic opportunities at Blackstone. He's an oh, tactical, 
Stack yeah. ops. High yeah. level executive at Blackstone. And they paid $280 million, uh, for the Sixers nine years ago. I think Forbes' most recent estimates peg the team value at like $2 billion plus. Um, and that, I mean, that sort of growth has been going on across the NBA um, to a lesser degree, I think, across uh, Major League Baseball and NFL. I think NBA uh, team values have been growing the most over the last decade. Maybe don't quote me on that. But point being, all the league's uh, team, team values are going up. MLB in particular jumps out as one where they just have these massive TV contracts that are locked in, uh, guaranteed revenue streams. You're running millions of people through your your ballpark every year. Um, so really, like as you kind of mentioned a little bit ago, until this pandemic came along and shook things up, uh, it had been a pretty solid 20 years of unimpeded growth uh, as far as financial prospects for these leagues. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're a venture capitalist, private equity investor, you're trying to get these two, three, four, five X kind of returns. Um, obviously those industries themselves are growing, getting more crowded. Markets have been in such a, uh, a bullish state for such a while that valuations of other companies are going up, you know, probably trying to buy into some teams or even in Europe, like buying into leagues, buying into like international rugby competitions that are held every year. I think probably just the finances there, uh, that kind of confluence of factors has made it more and more appealing. Yeah. Harrison Blitzer, they're trying to buy everybody right now. They're Trying to buy, they just maybe, I don't know if it's official yet, but they're trying to buy a stake in the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, they're rumored to be interested in buying the Mets after yep. uh, Steve Cohen, the big hedge fund guy, backed out. Was it Steve Cohen? I'm not sure. It uh, was Cohen. Yeah. yeah. No, it's uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it just Cohen. seems like, yeah, more guys are are filing in. Yeah. Yeah. Harrison Blitzer, I think it's uh, quite possible that in, uh, I don't know, several months, if talks end up going through, that they could own. Full stakes of teams in Major League Baseball, the NHL, the NBA, and the English Premier League. And then, like you said, yeah, own a stake in the Pittsburgh Steelers. So they are kind of, like they more than anyone else so far is checking off uh, kind of all the boxes there. Wow. Have any of the leagues or teams turned to private equity or or uh, venture capital in kind of this COVID issue and finances? I mean, the leagues have been taking huge hits. Teams have been taking hits. What have you seen? Yeah, um, I believe it was, I think the one that immediately comes to mind that Blackstone was reportedly in negotiations at one point to give a loan to Serie A, Serie A, uh, the main <laughs> Italian uh, <laughs> soccer league. And then there have been other firms, I think CBC Capital, been in talks to make an equity investment uh, in them. Um, and then also maybe not exactly tied to because of uh, COVID-19 pandemic, but has come up in the last couple months that uh, the NBA, I think Bloomberg reported they are in pretty deep talks with Dial Capital Partners, which is a arm of Nyberger Berman that focuses mainly on buying uh, GP stakes. So they buy right. stakes in other uh, private equity firms. Um, and so anyways, NBA has been in talks with Dial about raising a $2 billion fund that then would be used to buy stakes in multiple teams in the NBA, um, which is currently not allowed for an investor to own stakes in multiple teams. So this would be kind of a change in how they operate. Um, and the idea there as far as I can tell, uh, just a couple of different ones. Uh, a, just yeah, with valuations rising, it can be harder and harder for investors to find co-investors on things. Um, there's only yeah, so many people out there who can cut a you know, two hundred million dollar check uh, for a sports team. Um, and also just again, as for these owners who have been holding teams for quite a while, and maybe some of them uh, again who have more of a investment bent to this, they're in this to make money, not like you know say. The Rooney family that owned the Steelers for decades and as more of kind of a steward of the public trust. 
um, as those sorts of owners are looking for some liquidity and to get some returns um, from their investment, then I think the idea that Dial would be able to buy minority stakes uh, kind of on a secondary market like that. Um, so kind of serving a couple of different functions there as far as basically greasing the wheels of uh, kind of that team ownership economy in the league. It'll be interesting to see if uh, the move from GP stakes to NBA teams is a little bit of hubris on the on the part of Dial Capital or worked over there or not, or if they feel like, you know, there's some similarities and, uh, you know, revenue streams. I know our analysts have done a lot of work trying to kind of analyze private equity fund revenues and its streams. And, mm-hmm. you know, if teams are sitting on different streams of capital, I suppose there's there's a similar deal to be made there. So it's interesting to see how that one turns out. And yeah, definitely too, just again, to kind of circle back to the, like the MLB, as we're seeing like a league there, maybe, I don't think this has been good for their financial future the last couple of weeks. I think that's probably safe to say. Um, and just kind of opening up a, kind of a window into what could happen if, I don't know exactly what that situation would be, mm-hmm. but if things go bad for the NBA, your dial, you're sitting there, you've got stakes in, I don't know, six different teams. If all those kind of are start to decline in concert, um, yeah, that's not something that has happened uh, since the Selma brothers uh, in the ABA back in the day. But <laughs> there you uh, go. yeah, it's uh, I think it's definitely something that I'm sure there are some people in that firm that are thinking about. <laughs> yeah, I talked to an investor I can't name because you're not supposed to market your funds before they you know are announced because of SEC regulations. But maybe about a year ago, he was trying to put together a fund that would buy passive stakes in okay. uh, you know MLB teams. But I, I haven't checked back with him yet, but I can't imagine it's maybe maybe it's going well now because some of the valuations have dropped and it would be it would possibly be more appealing. Or uh, you know, there's obviously the public perception of the MLB right now is probably at an all time low, so maybe not so much. But yeah, for sure, it's a lot of interesting. Uh... Yeah, financial storylines out there. Yeah, what are the um, key sports business type storylines you'll be looking at here in the next couple of weeks as you know more leagues try to get back to to playing? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we've probably covered MLB enough at this point. Um, definitely interested to see NBA as well. Um, I mean, as of this recording, they are planning uh, to come back in Orlando and resume action there. Uh, also, as of this recording, I think Florida is seeing new spikes in uh, positive COVID nineteen testing. Um, and there are, seems like increasing conversations among uh, players and people in those communities about whether that is the best uh, move for all of them to do, to go down there and kind of live in a bubble for a few months and play out the season. Um, so not really a direct tie there to finance, but just uh, the, the business implications of that. Uh, if they do, if that does fall through, what that would mean for the CBA, for future television revenue, for player contracts, um, kind of the same stuff that's going on in MLB, uh, probably the most interesting little moment here in a really long time uh, as far as American professional sports and like labor relations uh, with ownership and how that is all playing out. Um, That's definitely one that jumps out to me. Um, And then just one more to circle back to the uh, firms raising funds for sports. Another one I should have mentioned a while ago, uh, I think it's called Arctos Sports Partners. Uh, It's a firm that they had registered with the SEC. I think it was like 500 million. And then there were some reports coming out that they were trying to raise up to 1.3, 1.5 billion. Um, for a fund that would acquire minority stakes in like a bunch of various different professional sports teams in different leagues, uh, kind of the, well, the minority version of the Harris-Blitzer strategy, not buying majority stakes in teams. Um, so that I'm very, definitely interested to see how that fund comes along. Uh, I think as far as I know, that's kind of a first of its time thing. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of opportunities are out there for them and yeah, kind of what strategy they end up going with. 
Yeah, well, we will certainly follow that closely as we hopefully get back to something a little closer to resembling normal life um, with the return of pro sports, even if there's no fans. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us for today's episode. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a fun time. As always, you can go to pitchbook.com slash podcast for the show notes and other relevant materials. I'm Adam Lewis. I'm Adley Bowden. Thanks again for listening to this episode of PitchBook's Invisible Capital Podcast. I can uh, I can tell the story about the themed t-shirt I'm wearing. Okay, let's hear it. So it's, uh, I don't know if you can see, Spirits of St. Louis, the old ABA team, which is the subject of my favorite uh, sports business story ever. Um, so like when they were merging with the NBA in 1976, uh, there were seven teams in the ABA left at the time and the NBA was only going to take four. Um, so one of those three that was getting left out, they just kind of like folded up shop and quit and their owners just walked away. I think one of them took like a $3 million buyout payment. And then the two brothers who owned the Spirits of St. Louis uh, decided to play hardball and managed to negotiate themselves a deal to receive one-seventh of all uh, broadcast revenue from the four teams who were going to go into the NBA in perpetuity. Um, so there was not any, there was not a national TV deal at the time. There wasn't like for oh, another wow. five years, but now nah, for the last 30, last 44 years, uh, one, I think it amounts to like 2% of all NBA television revenue has gone to these two brothers who never owned an NBA team and were never affiliated with the NBA whatsoever. And I think they've made like 350 million off of it by now. Wow, that is incredible. Just ask for some pennies and it's amazing. Yeah, that foresight. That's what they should have made semi-pro about, the Will Ferrell movie. I mean, I I think it was definitely an inspiration in some ways, yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. There's some real overlap.